Um, but I would like to begin reading back at verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 11. So uh, Colossians 3, verse 1 reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, last week we looked at the first four verses of chapter 3, where Paul begins to now give uh, a very explicit summons to the people of God to pursue righteousness. Uh, he calls you to seek things that are above that which is consistent with the gospel and consistent with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of which you are now a resident by grace if you indeed trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he roots this uh, pursuit, this call to action, in the fact that believers are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, which means you now as a believer have died to sin and are truly made new truly a new creation, so that you might now walk in newness of life. And Paul is summoning you here to now walk in that new life. This pursuit of that which is above is contrasted in verse 2 with things that are on the earth. And then now as we move into verse 5, Paul reveals that not only does the Christian life involve this pursuit of things that are above, that is a striving toward righteousness, a positive statement, pursue these things. But it also involves a conscious effort to put to death remaining sin, to kill remaining sin. So he's expanding in verse 5. He begins to expand on this phrase of things that are on earth. And he summons you to put these things to death. So there's effort here going in two directions, right? Positively, we might say there's the pursuit of righteousness. And then we might say negatively, it's the putting to death or putting off sin. So in verses 5 to 11, his focus is on uh, putting sin to death, uh, put that which we are to put off. And then in verse 12, he will get back to the positive of the things that we are to pursue, the virtues that we are to put on. So the plan uh, over the next few weeks, Lord willing, is to cover verses 5 to 11 uh, over the next two Sundays. So today we're going to be in 5 to 7, and then uh, in verses 8 to 11 next week. So the outline for today is we're in 5 to 7, 
We're going to look at the one command that Paul gives, one command, then five vices to kill, and this is followed by two motivations. So we have one command, five vices to kill, and two motivations. So let's begin with the command, the one command. Paul writes here, and he says to you, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Notice first that this command is grounded in what he has already said. He uses the word therefore. So he's saying in light of what he has already told you, particularly in verses 1 to 4, uh, this, this fact that as a believer you have died and been raised with Christ, in light of who you now are in him, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. So if you remember the context, the Colossians, what they're being tempted with, they're being tempted toward a very legalistic way of living the Christian life. It's not really the Christian life at all. They're being led out of the way of Christ and into uh, asceticism, into legalism. And so Paul is constant in his reminder that this pursuit of righteousness that he's calling for is rooted firmly and squarely in the grace they've already received in Christ Jesus. He keeps coming back to who you already are in Christ by faith, what it is you've already received as a gift of God's grace. And so he's rooting even this command. Again, he's reminding you, therefore, in light of this, what he has gone through, what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 4, because of who you are in Christ, put these sins to death. And he'll, go, he'll come back to it again in verses 9 to 10. Because the old man's been put off, because of who you are again now, he just keeps coming back to this. So the command that's given here, he says, is to put to death what is earthly in you. And as I said last week, this earthly, what is earthly, this is essentially a synonym for sinful, that which is sinful. Uh, but the word earthly does have its own nuance. He could have just said, put to death that which is sinful in you, put to death your sin, but he uses this word earthly. Of course, earthly is contrasted to that which is heavenly. It's showing that these sinful activities that he calls you to put off are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. In fact, these are things that are part of the fallen kingdom of man. Babylon, if you will, this fallen world. They're things that you're to now leave behind as those who are, because of what Christ has done, because of faith in Christ, now as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, Again, remember from last week, he's calling you now as a citizen of the kingdom to seek that which is above, that which is fitting with your new citizenship. And he's saying these things that you're to put to death, they're part of the old you, the old way. They're earthly. If you have a, an ESV, you might notice a footnote there. Uh, other English Bibles might also include these. I I'm not sure what, who all does or which versions do. Uh, but there's a footnote there by what is earthly in you, telling you that in the Greek it really says to put to death uh, your members that are on the earth or your members that are upon the earth. Uh, so what the translators of the ESV are doing there for you is they're trying to help you understand the sense of that phrase. What does it mean to have members that are on the earth? And they're making an interpretive judgment there when they write it out in the text as uh, that which is earthly in you. Now, just as a side note here, just 
pause on the sermon, just a side note, um, that's a helpful thing, I think, for them to do, um, to give you a little footnote to help you know when they're, they're making a, a, an interpretive judgment in this case. Um, so you can know these things. You can know precisely what that original text said, and you can study that out further. You could look up where we see members in other texts, like Romans 6 we read earlier, and you can study out more what exactly that means and see if you think the ESV is getting it right. That's a service to you as a reader of the Bible uh, in the English. And so that's a, a good thing that the ESV does. A number of other, some other English translations do, but not all of them do. Some of them make many of these interpretive judgments and don't tell you where those are, and that, I think, is not as helpful. <laughs> so uh, just, just that's just kind of a side note. I think that's a good thing they're giving you here. It actually is a service to you, the reader. So you're saying these members that are on the earth, you're to put them to death, or what is earthly in you, Now, this word members is a reference to body parts. Again, we read earlier from Romans 6, Paul uses this word there to exhort you to holiness. Very similar. He says in verse 13 of Romans 6, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So in Colossians 3.5, these members that are on the earth are essentially any part of you that is given to sin. Your hand, your brain, your mind, your stomach, your sexual organs, I think that's going to be clear in just a moment. Any aspect of you that is still set upon this world of sin and unrighteousness is to be warred against and these sins are to be put to death. That's what he's saying. Again, as we've said and as we saw last week, this is a call essentially to live in light of who you are in Christ. You have died to sin in him, and so now in light of that, take up arms and war against sin that yet remains. And so this is a reminder that though the Bible is clear that all in Christ have died to sin, uh, this death to sin does not mean that you are instantly perfect in your person. In Christ, you are indeed a new creature, a new creation. You are now able to obey, though you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins. You now, in Christ, have a new status before God in which you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are declared holy. You are a saint before God. This is your status before Him. But in your person your subjective experience of life, you are progressively becoming more righteous in your person. Your standing before God is, he declares you righteous before his judgment. It's a statement of a legal declaration of your righteousness before him, and you have that because of Christ. Christ's righteousness that he has earned in his life and death is imputed to you, it's given to you, it's credited to your account. And so God says, you're righteous before me, you will enter heaven because of the righteousness of Christ. You are righteous before him. But even now then, and having been made a new creature, you still, in your experience, in your day-to-day life, still wrestle with this indwelling sin. These parts of you, we might say, that are still earthly. The fatal blow to the old you, the old man, has indeed been dealt 
but there are remnants remaining of sin, this indwelling sin. And God will complete the work of bringing his children to perfection, which will occur on the day of the Lord. But in the meantime, you are called, as you go through your days, to take up arms and to battle the sin that remains, to kill it, to put it to death. And in Romans 8, we we read from Romans 6 and then a little bit from Romans 7, but if you just read through Romans 6 all the way through 8, uh, you'll see that all of this deals with precisely these matters, just kind of expands what Paul's saying here in Colossians. And in Romans 8.13, Paul tells us, tells you, you do this battle as a believer by his Spirit. You are putting to death the deeds of the body, this sin, this indwelling sin. And so it is the Spirit of God in you that enables this task. And so just as we begin here, we need to once again hear this summons to battle. God, through the Apostle Paul, calls you to war against your sin. And you're to keep at it until all sin is dead, which means you will be doing this all the days of your life. Uh, In his well-known book, The Mortification of Sin, uh, John Owen reminds us that this whole work of mortifying sin, killing sin, is done by degrees, and it is to be carried on toward perfection all of our days. So we're constantly striving for that perfection, striving for holiness, striving for righteousness, but this is something that will be progressively happening and we'll be striving towards all of our days, but not completed this side of Christ, this side of Christ's coming. We'll get to more of that in just a moment, but in terms of application here, I mean, there's so many things that could be said as we're summoned to war, to wage war against our sin. But I would first just, again, in keeping with last week, just exhort you to engage in this battle, to see this command, to hear it, to put sin to death. And as you do this, to use the means that God has given you at your disposal, the means of prayer, to pray fervently for victory in areas in which you specifically battle. Prayer is your lifeline to the Almighty. Jesus, has he not instructed you to pray and to pray even to not be led into temptation. This is something we are to be praying about. You should be praying for. You say, well, I have prayed, and it still just seems like I haven't been delivered yet. Well, Jesus has also instructed you, Luke 18, to, by, by telling a parable so that we would pray and not lose heart, understanding that often answer to prayer is delayed, and we can lose heart, But what else are we going to do? Stop praying and calling out to God? No, we continue to pray. So continue to pray for victory in whatever area you're battling. Another means God's given us are the scriptures, obviously. Read them often with eyes towards training your heart to love the things that are above and to despise the things that are below, your sin, earthly things. Gather with the church to worship as you are now, as often as you're able to hear the word preached, to sing praises to the Lord, to take the Lord's Supper, to be in fellowship with other believers. 
I would also encourage you to make use of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, to confide in one another, to seek out prayer for the things that you battle, to allow yourself to be known by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll just ask you, does anyone even know what you battle with, what sins you fight? Do you know the battles of those around you, your friends around you, fellow members in the church? And obviously we can use discretion in these things. I'm not saying just go blast, put it all up on Facebook, but just are you known? Do you know others? Do you know specific ways you can pray for each other and pray for other people? And as you fight sin, I would suggest you will need a balance as you battle this sin and seek to put it to death between despair and between arrogance. That is, I think you need a biblical caution and a biblical hope. On the one hand, because of the deceitfulness of your own heart, because of the deceitfulness of Satan and the world in which you live, you need to be careful. Not self-confident like Peter and the other disciples on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. They were all quite certain they would stay with him till death. Peter, we all know his story. I remind you of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a, 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 a proper caution and realism about our battle. We need to be careful as we go about it, not too too cocky in it. But on the other hand, we have the promises of God to sanctify believers, the promise for Christ to present you blameless before the Father, and so you have every reason to be hopeful as you battle, that your battle will succeed. The Scriptures say explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that your sanctification is the will of God. It's the will of God. Later at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, we often use it as a benediction, uh, verse 23 and 24, there we're told that God will surely sanctify you completely and present you blameless before him. I'm also reminded of Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So again, we press on with caution, being careful, not too arrogant or self-confident, but also with hopefulness. So I would just encourage you, if you feel defeated now because of your sin, your continued battle with sin, and there's still, there's always more to put to death, and I thought I had this licked, and here it reared its head again, and you're still fighting this, to just cling to these promises of God, that he's not yet done with you. And to set your mind on those promises of God, to keep his word, to keep his covenant. Has he not proven throughout the scriptures that he is faithful? This is, I mean, what do we learn in the Old Testament? If not, that God keeps his word. And you think, how can he possibly save me and keep me to the end? Because I'm a complete and utter disaster. Look at what he's done throughout the scriptures. How he keeps his word over and over again. And his word is that all who are in Christ, he will save. He will sanctify you completely, present you finally one day holy and blameless at the end. Remember this. Cling to this. Even as you make 
war today and await that day. So we have this command, this, this command to kill sin, to put it to death. And secondly, we have five vices here given to kill. Five vices to kill. So obviously this putting sin to death, putting what is earthly in you to death is true very generally. Whatever earthly things and sins might arise, we're called to put these to death. But Paul gets very specific here. He mentions sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is an interesting list. Uh, All five of these vices uh, are related to sexual sins and practices. Obviously, covetousness can be a much broader term and is a broader term. You can covet your neighbor's house, for example. Um, But even when the Ten Commandments were given, one of the examples of what we're not to covet is your neighbor's wife. Let's just go through these, these five words here briefly. Uh, this word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. You've probably heard that before. It's the general term that applies or refers to all types of sexual perversion. Adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality. You can safely add things like pornography into that. In Ephesians 5.3, Paul tells us this is not even something to be named among God's people, meaning that not even a tiny bit of it is to be in our midst. We are to abstain and to war against it in all of its forms, even its most subtle forms. And he adds impurity here. Impurity, uh, this word means a state of moral corruption. It could be a general immorality, a general vileness, but it is used especially in reference, again, to sexual sins in the Bible. It's tied explicitly to this and to lust in most of its uses in the Scriptures. Again, in Ephesians 5.3, impurity is listed alongside sexual immorality as something that's not even to be named. Passion, the word passion here, it's, the, it's an experience of strong desire. Uh, this word is often used positively today. Uh, someone who's got passion is someone who's just, a, you know, high on life and is, you know, whatever. I don't know how they use it. But, but it's a positive thing for the most part. Someone's passionate about something. But it's not, it's not in any way positive, obviously, in this case. And typically, it's not a positive thing in the Bible. It is used here... And then elsewhere, it's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.5 and Romans 1.26, the other two uses of this word. Both of those references are also in the context of sexual lust and desires. That's the kind of passion this is talking about. Speaking of desires, Paul mentions here evil desires as well. Like the other words, desire is commonly used in reference to lusts. Sexual lust. But again, this is a word that can be used a little more generally as well to refer to various fleshly cravings. Paul adds the adjective evil here just to be very clear about what kind of desire he's talking about. He's talking about desires for that which God forbids or desiring something that's good but desiring it in an inordinate way. 
So you have evil desires. And then the fifth vice Paul mentions is covetousness. Interestingly, the word that's translated here as desires, the fourth vice there, evil desires, um, that word desire is often translated as covet or covetousness in the Scriptures because desiring that which is evil or desiring something good but in an inordinate fashion is what coveting is. That is coveting. Now, the word here translated as covetousness seems to emphasize the latter part, seems to emphasize this inordinate desiring of something. Here's, here's a definition of this Greek word, the state of desiring to have more than one's due, greediness, insatiableness, avarice, or covetousness. So again, this can even be a good thing on its own, but being fixated on it, even though it's out of reach for you, even though it's not yours, it's not for you, it's not your due. It can be, ha- it can be uh, referring to having an appetite for something that just cannot be satisfied. You get that thing and you're just on to the next. Just want more goods, just want more wealth, just want more applause or love of men or whatever it might be. It's covetousness. And it's very interesting that he calls this idolatry. I think we would do well to just pause for a moment and consider this claim, this statement. It's not a claim, it's just truth. We would like to think, I'm guessing, it would be very nice if we could just leave idolatry in the category of, well, that's simply a reference to someone who would take an image and then bow before this image. Uh, That would take something, some physical item, and then worship that item. If we could just leave it there, then I think many of us would just be, oh, I'm not an idolater. But once again, the Scriptures penetrate the heart and reveal that we set up idols in our hearts. Your unsatisfied desires or inordinate cravings for things Paul calls idolatry. It's worship. John Calvin very famously said that the human heart is an idol factory, that you're churning out new idols to bow down to as various desires and impulses flow through you. And this is one reason why it's important for you to train your affections, your loves, and your desires in the truth. Because even desiring something good but inordinately is idolatry. And again, we want to think that if we've just kept away from some external sin, then we've got it figured out and we're obedient. And, but the Bible continually comes back to address the heart. It's similar to what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We can think of many instances there, but including, we might say, adultery. Right? You've, you, not to commit adultery, but Jesus says if you lust after a woman, and that word is the word desire, desire, crave, A woman, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Well, it would be nice if it was just that that external act and we can, you know, many of us just say, well, I've never done that, so I'm good to go. And Jesus comes in and, and says, no, God's also looking at your heart. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Covetousness is a form of idolatry. 
So this list reminds us that this battle for, of sin and, and this battle of putting sin to death goes to the heart. We, we, we battle on the level of desires, passions, cravings. These are things that God is concerned about. What do you want? What do you love? What do you desire? By the time a person commits sexual immorality externally, many other sins have been committed along the way in the heart. It is interesting that Paul immediately addresses this matter of sexual immorality as soon as he begins talking about what we should put to death. And then he's bringing up these various desires related to it. The pagan culture that the Colossians lived in and had participated in was very sexualized. One scholar summarized the view this way. He says, For the Greeks and Romans, sex is a part of nature and a part of society, and it's a, mis- sorry, and it's a mysterious and important part of ourselves, but it's not fully within our control. Does that sound familiar? Right? It's, it's great, it's mysterious, it's part of society, but it's not really within our control. Right? We just, you are kind of whatever you desire, right? And, and who am I to say otherwise? Uh, we just kind of fall in and then fall out of love. Right? That's, just, that's essentially pagan, paganism, that concept of love. And sexuality. Paganism embraces passions of the flesh and even in some cases deifies them. And this is the world that the Colossians had known. And now Paul says to these Colossian believers, not anymore. He says that is the way of the world that is earthly, that is no longer who you are in Christ. That is something on account of which the wrath of God is coming, as we'll get to in a moment. It's part of your former way of life, but it is no longer befitting the freed child of God. And of course, this givenness to passions and desires and lust is common in our society. Uh, Neo-paganism is on the rise. With it, pagan ideas of sexuality And of course, today, even where it's not openly flaunted, and it is openly flaunted, but even where it's not, much sexual immorality is enjoyed in the dark, enjoyed on screens, and enjoyed in private. Never has, I don't think, fulfillment of evil desire, of passion and impurity, been so easy. But we're not the first society to have it all around us either. So we can't use that as an excuse either. Paul calls you here to put this to death. And I would remind you also of what he says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You might feel uniquely trapped, but you're not. Or else Paul is a liar in 1 Corinthians 10. Again, the need is for biblical truth and biblical hope. Confess these sins to God. And if you feel that hopelessness, I would encourage you to seek help. Whatever the sin is you're battling with, find a a brother or sister who is having victory in that area and seek help, prayer. And remember God's promises to keep you. The situation is not all loss. Remember that salvation is a gift of God's grace. You're not working here to justify yourself before God. You've got to stay there. You've got to rest there. Make that your hope, or you will be in despair. And that's not, again, that's not trampling the grace of God. That's just acknowledging what the Bible teaches. We cannot be justified by works. Don't try it. If we extend this out beyond sexual cravings and sins to a more general covetousness, again, just test your heart for that insatiable appetite for more, whether it's money, security, possessions, whatever it might be. God's call to you is to kill this covetousness. And again, these are sins that aren't necessarily obvious to people because he's dealing with desires and cravings. A person could be someone who doesn't have a whole lot. They don't have much. And, and we might think, well, they're, they're very, you know, they're obviously not very covetous. They don't have much. But we wouldn't know that because we don't know their heart. Maybe they crave and desire riches and wealth, but they just don't have access to it. They can't have it. Likewise, someone might have more things than you do. That doesn't necessarily mean they're covetous. So let us, again, heed this call to kill covetousness, to kill evil desires, and on the flip side, to seek contentment with all that the Lord has provided for you, to seek thankfulness and gratitude in your present station your present condition. And then finally here, briefly, two motivations. Two motivations that Paul gives for this battle in verses 6 and 7. The first is in verse 6. He says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul reminds you here that these five vices are examples of things that bring about the wrath of God. Indeed, these are abominable things before the Holy One. It is God who has created all and provided all of mankind with the things that you and I possess. And though you deserve instant death for your sins, he has yet given you life and good things. Everyone who has experienced life and any good thing has received much kindness from God, considering what we deserve instantly. 
And yet, how has man repaid God for this? Well, by denying his existence, by denying his sovereignty, his provision, and by craving wickedness, by seeking that which God says is evil. And judgment is indeed coming. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how men and women being handed over to these cravings and desires, being given over to their blindness, how this is a judgment from God. And yet, one day, the day of the Lord will come. And with that will come God's final judgment on sinful mankind. The day that his wrath will be poured out, the day that the scriptures tell us Jesus himself will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God. Such a thought ought to startle every person, every guilty sinner, into falling on their face before God and pleading for mercy. And yet for many, they would just scoff and thank you and not for saying it. They scoff at such notions of divine justice, such notions of holiness and judgment. And yet for those with circumcised heart, for you who've been made new within, who know that you deserve God's judgment, who are finding and seeking refuge in Christ, though you still battle with sin and struggle along with it, such a reminder that these sins are that which God abhors, that which will bring about judgment, this reminder is humbling, is it not? Sobering. That were it not for God's grace, you would deserve to be under that judgment, that wrath of God that is coming. And yet, it is also good and important as we consider the wrath of God to remember that God's wrath is not only coming one day, but has indeed been poured out upon his Son for you, on your behalf. And his wrath has been satisfied and full. This is the meaning of the word propitiation in Scripture. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God for you. Drunk it down, the cup that you deserve. Your debt, as he has said in Colossians, is paid in full. And again, last week we saw in verse 4, he said, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so he's pointing out here now that these vices are not fitting with this citizenship that you hold to. To train your mind with this, to battle your covetous heart, your covetous thoughts with thoughts of eternity, of what you will be when Christ appears in glory and you with him, in contrast to the wrath of God that is coming. And this leads, I think, into the second motivation, verse 7. And these you too once walked while you were living in them. This is a reminder of the old way. You once walked in this way when you were living in these sins. When you were living in these passions. This is how your slavery to sin, one of the ways that it was manifested. And this is the part of you that has died. You are now united with Christ. You are now a part of God's kingdom. Sometimes in the fog of our war against sin, 
Uh, we can look back on our life in sin and, and think it well, maybe wasn't that bad. It's somewhat like the, the way that the child, the, uh, Israel, after being taken out of slavery in Egypt, which was misery, uh, then when they're in the wilderness, they begin to long to be back in Egypt. They want to go back. They plan to actually kill Moses and go back because they remember all the good things they had or what they think was good, but they were in slavery. And sometimes we can think about, we can remember this battle we're talking about is difficult and it's a struggle and we wrestle and it was just easier when I didn't do any of this stuff. And the answer is, yes, it was. It was easy to just do whatever you felt like doing. No one's saying otherwise. But it is indeed slavery to sin that ends in judgment. This is the reminder here. But now God's grace His kindness has been poured out on you, and you are hidden with Christ in God, as we saw last week. You belong to him and are forgiven. Our world encourages just living by impulse. And again, I would suggest it even, I I don't think it's too far to say it even deifies this. I mean, to the point where I mean, we're not even really allowed to question people's desires, especially when it comes to matters of sexuality. Sexuality is wildly confused. And as people get saved out of this confused world that we live in now, after being raised in it, after living in it, we can expect tremendous confusion. And we can expect the need to have to address these matters, these issues, over and over again with as much biblical clarity and grace as we can. It's going to be normal. Just imagine, just imagine what's going to happen when when people who've wholeheartedly bought into all that's going on with transitioning and all of these things when, when these folks, some of them get saved when they're older and enter into the church, you know, we would hope that would happen, right? We want that to happen. So this is going to be something that in our day, we're just going to need to continue to address, to be as clear as we can, as loving as we can about these matters of biblical sexuality. But of course, this text calls you not just to consider those out there who are confused, but it calls you to war against sexual immorality in your own heart, impurity, evil desires, covetousness, that which still dwells in you in whatever form it takes. And so I encourage you to do this, to take up arms, and to do this as one whose sins have been paid for in Christ, as one who by God's grace is a redeemed child of the heavenly kingdom of God, if indeed you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not, if you've just somebody who has been given over to your sin, perhaps externally you have looked clean, nobody would even know what has gone on inwardly, but you know you've never really been repented, repentant, you know these things within, then you are called to repent of that sin to place your faith in Jesus Christ, 
to see that on account of those sins, the wrath of God is coming and you will not escape. To agree with the judgment of God against you and your sin and to confess that to him and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And then as those who are doing this, fight the remnants of that sin as a freed man or woman of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every single one of us stands condemned before your law. This is one of the effects your law has. We are sinful. Our our, sin. Our desires are disordered in different ways for each one of us, to different extents, on different issues. Father, I pray that we would allow your word to expose these dark corners. Father, remind us of the righteousness of Christ. Remind us of your grace, that we would not be discouraged and distraught by this sin, but we would allow your light to shine on it and welcome this and confess it to you confidently because of Christ. I pray that we would have strength because of this to stand, to get back up, to keep fighting. I pray that we would engage with our sin and seek to slay it and put it to death. Father, I pray for every one of us that you'd Encourage us and strengthen us. Father, make us a church that is very, very, very patient with one another as we all struggle in our own ways, as we all sin, as we all battle. Father, give us wisdom to help one another. Help us to remember our brothers and sisters throughout our days that we might pray. Father, when we learn of sin in one another, may we be gentle. Father, thank you that you have dealt so mercifully with us. Father, strengthen us for the battle, and and we, we are so grateful for the promises that you give us in your word. That you, have, that you have shown us that you are faithful to keep your word so that when you promise you will finish what you begin, we can take comfort in this. So Father, encourage and strengthen your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time...